Amen. If you have Bibles, you can open them up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 18 to 19. Now, do you know what most non-Christians' biggest complaint about Jesus and Christianity is? Rhetorical question. Don't answer. Non-Christians' biggest complaint about Jesus and Christianity. First, let me tell you what it's not. Uh, First of all, their biggest complaint is not about the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, It's actually interesting when people start to dig into the historical accuracy of these claims and events, um, multiple times over, people end up seeing that it is really, really hard to deny the historicity of a dead man from Jesus, called Jesus of Nazareth, who was murdered by Rome and then was raised again um, with multiple, multiple witnesses. And and we could talk about that forever, but this is just like a a brief overview. If you start looking at uh, the discovery of the empty tomb corroborated by no less than six independent sources from history. The evidence is overwhelming, but I think the, the, the compelling nature of this actually comes from different reasons. You look at the mother of Jesus. All right, moms, is your son or daughter God? No, you clean up their vomit and their diarrhea. Like, there is no way in God's green earth that you are going to acknowledge that your son or your daughter is the sinless God-man, right? right? There's just no way. And yet we find Mary raises Jesus and worships him as the sinless God-man, the sacrifice for sins. It gets even better. Um, Jesus' brothers worship him as God. James and Jude both wrote books in the New Testament. I'm sorry, I've got three older brothers, but there is no way that you are going to convince me that they are the sinless son of God. Not a chance. I look at these things alone, and I'm like, there is something powerful about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, You can look at the lives and the deaths of the disciples. You have these men who left everything familiar, traveled up to multiple continents, countries all over the Middle Eastern world, and all of them but one were murdered in gruesome ways for their conviction that Jesus was dead and then was alive again. Now, here's what I want to tell you. This is not the primary complaint about people because once people start studying the historicity of the resurrection, doubt starts to fall away because something objective happened. Let me tell you what it's also not. It's also not about the reliability of the Bible. The vast majority of people who don't like the Bible reject the Bible because they read somebody who read somebody who said they read the Bible and took it out of context. It's a very different story than to be somebody who actually opens up the Word of God, reads it, thinks about it, studies it. In fact, what we find over and over again, the resident power of the Word of God, it's a really beautiful book. And when people open it up and study it in its context, they are moved over and over and over again. Now, many people don't like what it says, but that it is an incredible, miraculous, unbelievable book is really not debatable. Let me tell you what most non-Christians' biggest complaint about Jesus and Christianity is. The reason why they will not pursue or explore Christianity and the reason why many will not trust in Jesus as their God and their Savior. Here it is. The world is so messed up. Here's the question they ask. How could there be a God with all the power 
to stop this. And he appears to sit back and do nothing. How could there be a God with the power to stop all of the crazy, all of the insanity, all of the mess? But he doesn't. He appears to just sit back and to do nothing. Now, this is where Romans 8.18 comes to play. The Apostle Paul, he's going to bring together the suffering of our current world and the resurrection. So I want to draw your attention to Romans chapter 8, verses 18. And here's how it starts off. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. I want you to notice, first and foremost, the word consider. Here's what it means. It means to evaluate, to scrutinize, to look closely with deep consideration. I want you to, want you to hear me. Mature Christians do not turn a blind eye to the suffering of the world. We do not turn a blind eye to the suffering of our neighbors. We're not all just happy, clappy. There's no problems in the world. Everything's going to be fine and dandy. It's all going to be good. In fact, Christians historically and currently should be known for our empathy, for our lament, our ability to walk into the crazy, the saddest parts of human life and understand them personally. Now, in case for some reason some of you think that the Bible is written by stoic people who have no personal experience, their life was easy, let me just tell you a little bit about the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Romans. And I would like to make a proposition on the front end here. And I I, want to make an offering to you, okay? If my proposition is wrong, I want to invite you to personally come up to me after the service and tell me your story and tell me why I'm wrong. Here's my proposal. No one in this room knows suffering like the Apostle Paul. No one. None of you even come close. Let me ask you some questions. Have you ever been lashed 39 times? This is, by the way, the lashing that Jesus would have gone through before his crucifixion. Paul was on five separate occasions. His body was a mangled mess of scars. Have you ever been beaten with rods from head to toe? Paul was on three separate occasions. Have you ever been stoned? And let's just, let's just change our ideas about what stoning is in biblical times. Uh, at first, they would throw rocks at you, but the death blow wouldn't happen from all the rocks they throw at you. It would happen because they would put uh, a huge rock over a short cliff, and they would drop it onto your head and crush you to death. That's where the death blow would happen. Has that ever happened to any of you? Because it actually did, and he survived it. Have any of you had friend after friend after friend after friend murdered in cold blood simply because of what they believed? Good men, good women. Paul did. Paul knows grief and suffering and lament more than anyone in this room. I'll put my bottom dollar on it. Not only that, let me tell you why he has the ultimate trump card. At the end of the day, he was beheaded. My guess is none of you in this room have been beheaded. You can laugh. He was beheaded for his firm conviction that Jesus Christ was dead and is now alive, that he is the sinless son of God who died on the cross for sins. He he would go to no length 
There was no place he wouldn't go and no thing he wouldn't do to proclaim this message. You have, you have to understand the context of the man writing this so that you don't for a second think that he is somehow distant from pain. Christians know suffering. We get this. Uh, Pastor Matt, at the beginning of our service, he opened it up and he prayed for the church in Sri Lanka. When I woke up this morning, uh, the news feed came up. It said 137 dead. Before our first service, it was up to over 200 people. And these are just brothers and sisters, like every one of us, with family and children sitting next to people they love, coming together on Easter Sunday to worship and to celebrate the fact that our God is not dead, but he is alive. And in a moment, their bodies are blown to pieces, their loved ones are gone, and everything that they have known is over, it seems from an earthly perspective, forever. Christians know suffering. We get this. Somehow, Christianity is unshaken by the suffering of this world. Like there's, there's two responses to suffering, and one is you shake your fist at God, and you become hard-hearted and jaded. Here's what I found with jaded people. They don't really get a lot done. They don't make the world better. Like, have you ever been around somebody jaded, and you're like, I'm glad I was around them. Like, I feel like a better human being because I'm around a jaded person. doesn't really quite happen. Uh, the suffering of the world does not jade Christians. We actually do something very different. When everybody else runs and when everybody else shakes their fist at God, we actually do the opposite. We walk into the crazy. We walk into the pain. We walk into the suffering. In our home, we, uh, we have this saying I say with our kids, and it goes like this. Fuelings do hard things. My last name is Fueling, in case you didn't know that. Fuelings do hard things. And this drives my older kids nuts because they've said to me on a handful of vacations, why do we have to go do hard things? I'm like, I don't know. His name's Jesus. And that's like what he did. It's like every hard circumstance, like, oh, you're ostracized by society. Uh, I'm going to go talk to you. Oh, everybody tells me I shouldn't like be around you people. I'm going to go hang out with you guys. Like every dark, difficult, chaotic circumstance, Jesus walked right into it. That's why my wife is a counselor and a police chaplain for the city of Barlett. It's why I'm a pastor. This is just what Christians do. We walk into crazy. We walk into chaos. It's just how we do it. And this is where you should be saying, okay, Michael, it's Easter. What does suffering have to do with the resurrection, man? I thought this was supposed to be happy. I'm so glad you asked. And this is exactly what Paul's going to get to in the next part of verse 18. Here's what he says. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let me, let me say it like this. Christian, there is something incredible and amazing that is going to happen, not just to a renewed world, but to every one of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. That when you experience it, when you look back at the pain and the suffering and the trials of this world, they will seem small. That's crazy, because when you're in the middle of it, is your pain and suffering small? And the answer is, of course, not at all. And so the best analogy that Paul can come up with in Romans 8 is like that of childbirth. Let's look at a couple verses later in Romans 8. Here's what he says. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You know that time and labor, like especially dudes when your wife is like, ah, you know, ladies, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's like, like this is real. And you want this thing to be done, do you not? 
Like, I've never met a pregnant woman who's like, I wish I could be in labor forever. It's going to be amazing. Like, that, that is not what happens. Like, there is a, get this over now. This is painful and excruciating and terrible. Here's what it says, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Oh, FYI, right now we have two moms at Village Church who are in labor. How apropos. And if you're watching this, hi, but shut off the TV and have a baby. Okay. <laughs> Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we, we ourselves, this feels like labor. Like this side of the, of the resurrection the, of, of the church is labor. It is hard. It is suffering. We walk into this. We know this. We see this. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. Just do me a favor. Take the word first fruits. Put that in the margin of your mind. We'll come back to that later. We, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons for the redemption of our bodies. Apparently, after childbirth, your body is never the same. Apparently, the pain is unspeakable unless you drug up. Praise God for modern advances in technology. (laughs) Apparently, it is excruciating. But then, here's the crazy part. Then you have this baby, and apparently the glory and the beauty and all the hormonal rush that God has created to be infused inside of a woman's body after she gives birth, apparently the glory of this event makes all the pain and suffering seem very small and totally worth it. Like This is the best analogy that he can come up with. And, and then here's what's, here's what's crazy. Then after like 12 to 14 months of not sleeping and an incredible amount of marital discord, just my family, yeah, no? <laughs> she says, let's have another. <laughs> because there's something about the glory and the beauty that makes the pain in retrospect seem small. Let me tell you, when you're in labor, the pain isn't small. But there are these experiences in life when there is a glory that is to be revealed that actually puts everything into perspective. Um, my wife has a condition. It's called hyperemesis. It's about 1% of women. And here's what this means. It means that uh, for almost your entire pregnancy, you are violently ill. You throw up not just in the first uh, trimester, but in the second one and the third one, all the way up to the point where you finally have the baby. The way um, I typically find out that we're pregnant is we'll be driving in my car and she'll throw up, right? And so apparently my driving is not conducive to people who are like easily nauseated, so I'm told by a lot of people, right? And so here's what's crazy even about her pregnancies is they are, they are terrible, They are the worst. Like, she is on the couch, bedridden. It is a hard, hard, hard experience. And even she, after holding the glory of a baby, says, let's have another one. And I'm like, I can't lose you for eight and a half more months. Are you crazy? But this this just shows you how sometimes there are some things that are so beautiful that once you experience it, it actually causes you to look back and see the thing that in the moment was so terrible, it puts it into such bigger perspective. Listen, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Now, before I read this, I need you to just understand this. All of the suffering that I talked about earlier from Paul was taken from the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, here's what I think is really important about this. 
there is a time gap between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And guess who experienced a whole lot more suffering between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? His name is Paul. He probably got stoned again. He probably got lashed again. I don't know what happened, but here's what I know. Here's what he says. For this light momentary affliction. We're not talking like, oh, I'm not feeling very well today. Oh, I got a bruise. Like, he calls the suffering of this world for the Christian light momentary affliction. Why? He says, for this light momentary affliction, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Catch this, beyond all comparison. There is some sort of glory that is to be revealed that when it is puts into perspective all the chaos and the crazy and the suffering of this world. He goes on in verse 19, he says this, for the creation, it waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This is like the dad who is watching his wife in labor and he's waiting. He cannot wait to meet the revealing of the son or the daughter that is about to be born. And there is this anticipation and the creation here, it's not just nature, but it's the angelic realm. It's all the brothers and sisters who've trusted in Christ, who have died and they've gone to be with the Lord. They are waiting and longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for Jesus to come back and to renew creation and to give us these new resurrected bodies. There is this, 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 this groaning and this waiting and it's like we're all in labor and it feels like it could happen at any time but of course labor does what it does and she keeps going on longer and longer and longer. Now you remember the word first fruits that Paul mentioned in Romans 8. I want to I come back to this. It's a word that does not mean a whole lot to the vast majority of Americans. But for Paul and for the Jewish community, this word had a lot of depth and meaning. And very simply this, first fruits was an offering. It was an offering that is your first and your best. And here's the idea, that Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, was God's first fruits. There is no better offering than Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, nothing. There, there's nothing better that God could have given. And so here's what it means, that God gave his first and his best, and, and the resurrection of Jesus was the first. But I love this about first fruits. It's the first of many to come. And so the idea here is that Jesus was the first to be resurrected. Now, other people in the Bible were resurrected. You think about Lazarus, right? But guess what happened to Lazarus? He died again, right? Jesus was the first one to be resurrected, immortal and eternal, Jesus was the first one, the first glimpse of what these resurrected bodies that we are going to get one day are going to look like. And what I, love about, what I love about what Jesus did after the resurrection is he appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people. Let me just read to you from 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what Paul says, that the resurrected Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Here's what the appearances would do for them. Number one, it would validate that Jesus was not a dead man, that he was risen, that his sacrifice for sin was accepted. But here's the second thing it would do. It would give them a vision into what was waiting for them on the other side of death. 
It, it would show them that whatever happens in these bodies is temporary, and the God who has all the power to raise a dead Jesus from the ground, the, the God who has all the power to speak and then matter exists, that God surely has the power to raise your broken dead bodies anew immortal. And Jesus walks around as a tangible reminder to every single person who would see them that this life is not all there is, and that one day there will be a resurrection. And Jesus was the first fruits. And everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ will get resurrected bodies in a resurrected creation with a resurrected kingdom that will reign throughout the whole world. That is what our hope is. Now, I want to fast forward with you to Revelation 21, and I just want you to soak in this passage of Scripture. The Bible loves to propel our hearts and minds to the future so that we never forget the hope that is before us. And here's Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Like we, we are not afraid of the pain and the suffering discussion. We know something that people who do not have the hope of resurrection know. We know that there is something, something infinitely more glorious waiting that will put all of this into perspective. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Does anybody else want that? Right? Because Jesus rose, the God who has the power to raise him from the dead, has the power to usher in this new world and to give you resurrected bodies. Verse 5, he says, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Like, I wonder if he's like talking and John's just staring at him and Jesus is like, Pen, paper, go, write. He said to me, It's done. And in case you're wondering if Jesus has the authority and the power to do all this, here's what he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And we typically end our messages with so what. And I want to share with you just two so what's as we come to a close. Number one. If you've never trusted in Christ, um, first of all, um, I'm so glad you're here. And I know church is probably not the most natural place for you to be. You probably didn't wake up today saying, yay, I get to go to church. But I'm genuinely so glad you're here. And I want to encourage you with something. Would you consider the risen Jesus? Would you consider trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the certain hope of resurrection. Now, there's something you need to know about me. Um, I don't believe I have the power to convince you into salvation. I don't believe I have the power to coerce you. 
This is a decision that you and you alone have to make. And I can't think of a better day than to trust in Jesus Christ for the first time than Easter. And of course, some of you will say, I will not be the person who trusts in Christ because of some preacher on Easter Sunday. I know that's why they wanted me to come here because they wanted me to trust in Jesus. Here's what I have to say. Who cares what they think? If Jesus is the resurrected son of God with power, man trusts in him. And who cares how it happened? Who cares? If he truly is who he says he is, all the reasons that are standing between you and Jesus, all the pride, all the things, let them go because if Jesus is who he says he is, it is 100% worth it. And so I don't know where you're at today, but if that's even something you want to take a next step on and you want to ask more questions about, uh, I'm an insatiably curious guy, and I like to get all the information I can. And if that's where you're at, I mean, we'd love to just sit down with you. we got a pastoral staff. I'd love to sit down with you and just bring your questions. We can handle them. If we don't know the answer, we'll just say, I don't know. Don't got a clue. But I, I say bring your toughest questions and do whatever you need to do to be ready to trust in Jesus Christ. Because again, if he is who he says he is, you cannot, cannot ignore him. Uh, For those of you who are believers in Jesus, I want to give you an encouragement. Endure this present suffering. One day, just as Jesus was given a glorified body, so too will we be raised imperishable, eternal, and sinless. The glory that is to be revealed will far outweigh all of the crazy of this world. And in the the in-between, here's what we do. We don't run from the crazy, we run into it. We don't act like it's not here, we run into it. We pray for those who are hurting, who are suffering. I'm, I'm looking at a bunch of people that I know. Let me tell you about the vast majority of you, something that I do know. Your bodies are falling apart. I'm not saying that to be critical of you. I'm just saying it is. Uh, I read a scientific journal way back in the day. It said at about 24 years old, the human body starts to die. So um, for the vast majority of you in this room, you are dying. And those of you who are not 24 yet, you will be. Ha, ha, ha. You're going to die too. So this is everywhere. This is real. This is life. And so we walk into this, and our bodies are going to fail. If I were to ask 90% of you in this room, Jesus, if you could fix one thing in my body, immediately most of us would have something. But with every new year, it's going to be another thing and another thing and another thing until our bodies completely give out and we die and we close our eyes for the last time. This world is filled with suffering, and we suffer with dignity. We suffer for the glory of God. We suffer well. This is what we do because this is the human condition until Jesus comes back. But I want to tell you this, endure. Right now you're in labor. But one day Jesus will come back and he will usher in a resurrected world and a resurrected kingdom with resurrected bodies. And this will all seem like light momentary affliction. It's coming. And this is the hope we sink our teeth into. So here's what we're going to do. I want to I take some time and just pray with you for a moment. And then we're going to stand together and we're just going to celebrate the resurrected Jesus. We're going to sing two last songs and we are going to celebrate the fact that because Jesus was raised from the dead, that same power will one day raise us from the dead with new bodies and a new kingdom and a new world. Let's pray together. Father.
Thank you for your word, how clear it is that you just regularly point us to the hope of a new heaven and earth, new bodies, new kingdom. You just propel our hearts forward, and we realize that between that day and this is a lot of difficulty. May we not be people who ignore it, who brush past it, but who face it. Thank you for giving us resurrection power through your Holy Spirit now that gives us the ability to not be fearful and run away from everything, but to run into it. Father, on this Easter Sunday, God, I pray you would just well up again in our hearts awe and gratitude. But Lord, some of us today, we just need encouragement. We are beaten down and we are struggling relationally and physically in so many other ways. We're living right now in the most palpable sense in the sufferings of this present time. And so God, I pray that you would continue just to cast our hearts and our minds forward, that you would give us the energy. And Lord, some of us need some real measurable healing in this place. And so God, I pray you would intervene in ways that give you all the glory. But Lord, we even confess that the day we're healed, our bodies will still begin the onward march toward death. And so we look forward to that day. And, and Lord, on behalf of every brother and sister of Christ in this room, I just say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead and giving us his hope. And Lord, for those in this room who are still wrestling, I do pray, Lord, if you are who you say you are, would you just make Jesus known to them by your Holy Spirit? We love you. We worship you now. We do this all in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and worship.